0: We believe each book of the Bible has been given a unique design. That is, the author has given it a structure and a flow of thought by placing key stories or poems and so on. So before you dive into the details of any book of the Bible, which is really easy to get lost, we're gonna help you back up, get a picture of the, the design and how it fits into the overall story.
1: It's Morgan and Sherry Snyder, and welcome back to another episode and actually a series of the Become Good Soil podcast. This is really exciting to dive into this category of Through the Bible. Before we dive into this particular episode, I want to offer two invitations. This episode is the launch of a three-part series, and so together with the help of Sherry, my bride, along with a circle of the Become Good Soil alumni, we're going to be offering reflections of our experience thus far of our venture through the entire Bible this year, daily, and over a year with the help of the Bible Project and their amazing app, and I'll give the spoiler alert that we want you to join us. So friends, here's my dream. Over a thousand like-hearted allies, men and women alike, who are regular listeners of the Become Good Soil podcast. We're looking for men and women who want to engage in this one-year experience together as a fellowship. We'll break up into smaller, more intimate cohorts, and each of those cohorts will be facilitated by a BGS alumni from one of our intensives. It's all done personally, but the progress and the interactions through messages on a message board is all hosted on the free custom app created by The Bible Project. I've been taking this journey through 2021 with two different, very unique groups. The first is a handful of my close friends and their spouses. And so it's a co-ed group. And the second has been this a round table of about 20 Become Good Soil alumni facilitators. It's been incredibly life-giving for many of us in very unique ways. And we want to invite you in. There's a Google form that begins to initiate the process of participating in this one-year venture again it launches january 1st but you need to register by november 22nd and if you just can remember one thing becomegoodsoil.com forward slash bible so on that page becomegoodsoil.com slash bible you can register through a simple google form and let us know takes about 30 seconds it's all free all are welcome For men and women who are subscribed to the Become Good Soil podcast, we wanted you to know right from the start that as a context for the heart behind this three-episode series. And so one more invitation before we dive in. January of this coming year, we'll be reaching our 100th Become Good Soil podcast episode. It is just hard to believe. It's impossible to believe. I had some time in a remote Alaskan wilderness last week. And I took a pause in the midst of brutal weather and lots of bugs and the sun popped out for a moment. I'm watching a grizzly bear eating wild blueberries on the landscape about 500 yards away. And I found myself drawn to this idea, the awe of what God has done through the Become Good Soil podcast. It started somewhere around a decade ago. And the through line, the intention was this through line for soul strengthening that began with 12 courageous, like-hearted allies. They were the first alumni from the very first Become Good Soil intensive. And I wanted to find a way to give ongoing nourishment for these men that are saying yes to the narrow road. So I began creating the podcast and trying to offer soul strengthening, nourishment, championing God's work in their lives. And it grew year by year and episode by episode. God formed it into something that became a strategic offering for like-hearted apprentices chasing after God and his kingdom. And so now we have a growing tribe of thousands around the globe And I paused in that celebration just with awe, thinking of all the stories that come to me from listeners. And I hear stories where God has worked in your life through a particular episode. And I was praying and asking God, how do we celebrate this 100th episode mark? And my sense was that I wanted to feature your voices, your stories. I wanted to take a moment to hear how God has worked in your life Through the Become Good Soil podcast, and I wanted you to have a chance to share that by way of encouragement to the other listeners. And so here's the thought. We have a simple tool for you to offer to us an audio recording, your name, where you're from, what Become Good Soil podcast episode had an impact on you, and what did God do through it that would be an encouragement to other listeners. So there's a link on this podcast page. This is episode 92. We'll hopefully have it on the next couple episodes. But just look for the 100th BGS podcast tool called SpeakPipe, where you can give us your recording. So two ways to find it. On this episode, episode number 92, or on becomegoodsoil.com, go to the more section and find Connect. And I know that's a lot, but basically go to Become Good Soil, go to more, find Connect, and under that you'll see something of the 100th Become Good Soil podcast. There's a tool called SpeakPipe. Hit that and you can give us a recording. And my hope is to feature as many of those as possible in the 100th episode that'll come out sometime in January, God willing, of 2022. Now, having shared those two particular invitations, let's turn a corner and dive in. If you followed the Bible Project, then you will be very familiar with the voices of Tim Mackey and John Collins that were captured in that introductory audio from one of the Bible Project videos. But if you're not familiar, it's a remarkable um, nonprofit, Christ-centered community of like-hearted allies who have taken it as their mission to restore people's understanding, experience of the sacred scriptures. Before we go any further, I want to turn to one of the original Bible project videos that Tim and John put together years ago to help us all orient. What is the Bible? What is God after? and how can we engage? Let's listen to this audio.
0: Hey there, I'm Tim Mackey. I'm a pastor at Door of Hope Church and also a professor of Bible at Western Seminary in the wonderful city of Portland, Oregon. My name's John Collins. I'm a founder of Epiphio and Sincerely Truman, which are both communication companies that care about getting to the heart of why things matter. We believe the Bible is a profound and very beautiful book that's telling one complete story from beginning to end, but it's also a very long book. And it means it's often confusing and is just intimidating overall. So this project is all about exploring the entire biblical narrative, but breaking it up into short five minute animated videos that help you understand the structure and themes of the Bible. And we're gonna do this in two ways. So first we're gonna go through book by book, because we believe each book of the Bible has been given a unique design. That is, the author has given it a structure, and a flow of thought by placing key stories or poems and so on. So before you dive into the details of any book of the Bible, which is really easy to get lost, we're gonna help you back up, get a picture of the the design and how it fits into the overall story. Secondly, we're gonna take major themes in the Bible and we're gonna trace those themes from the beginning to the end of scripture. So these are things like sacrifices, the Messiah, heaven and earth. We obviously have a lot of work to do because there's a lot of books in the Bible and a lot of themes in the Bible. So you can actually check out our whole list that we want to do on our website at jointhebibleproject.com.
1: We've watched the Bible videos for years. We've used them with our kids. We've used them in our marriage. And just this past January, we sensed from God that we were to return to actually going with the Bible project through the Bible over 365 days. And it's been a while since we read that. Cher, when's the last time you went cover to cover through the Bible?
2: Buddy, I never have before. I never have until this year.
1: For me, it was my junior year of college. I came to Christ April 19th, 1995, the end of my freshman year. And sophomore year, I started getting some orientation to the scriptures, and then it dawned on me, I am trusting a God expressed in this sacred literature, and I've never read it. And I'm kind of cherry-picking parts of it and relying on other people to kind of do the work for me. I want to go cover to cover. And so I did that, and it was a holy experience at the time. I was such a young believer. I'm still a young believer, but I was younger still. And I remember sitting at the airport in Atlanta, Georgia. I was heading out to Europe uh, for a semester just to detox my soul and extract myself from many addictions. And one of my missions and mandates was to read through the scriptures cover to cover. So I started Genesis 1 and had wild adventures through Europe just with a backpack, a lot of solitude, which I had never spent time in solitude, a lot of trail time I had never been hiking much in my life and on a really tight budget it was basically me and god and the scriptures Um, and i remember finishing revelation in that same airport sitting in atlanta georgia several months later and just with this wild encounter with the living god Um, but that wasn't my first experience of the bible Um, We all have a story, and it's important to recover that, because as you heard from the teaser trailer, the Bible was meant to be one unified story, and Tim and John would say that leads to Jesus. I think I'd say it another way, uh, one unified story that leads to the life of God, the family of God, that orients us to what Dallas Willard would say is a God-initiated, God-breathed, God bathed reality. That's what it's intended to be, but it's a mess. It's confusing, it's strange, it's discouraging. It's wildly unpredictable. It's been t- I've had many moments of disorientation in this past year alone returning to it, but also I've found tremendous life. So share, orient us. What was the Bible? Like for you, first experiences growing up, how did it come to you? What was it? Uh, before you kind of consented to a life of apprenticeship?
2: Mm. Buddy, first I just have to say, I'm just watching you and appreciating you. I love what an earnest, humble student. I love how you just said, I'm still a young believer.
1: It is true.
2: Well, you are very, um, it's very attractive to me, your humility. So enough said on that. But, pick um, that up on a marriage podcast. Yeah, we'll but pick we'll that up another time. Oh, okay, exactly. <laughs> back you. to the back to the subject, Morgan. I, I speak to your humility because I think it's it it. I observe it setting me at ease, even as we come to this topic of the Bible. And I feel like, um, just the word "Bible" to me almost it does feel like this lightning rod. Like the word just feels really um weighty yeah, and it's kind loaded, of loaded. It's I mean. It just, it's just a challenge. So I, um, I really appreciate, thank you for your humility and for modeling it and um, showing me and giving me, inviting me and our allies a safe place to show up and just be transparent. I can't necessarily speak to as a little girl, but I would bring the conversation on as an adolescent where I began to really be very skeptical of um, Christianity and i grew up in a very uh, secular environment and i think that there was both um, internal questions that i had and then also external movements in our culture at the time this is you know late 80s or early 90s where there was just a momentum in our culture i think to be skeptical of the bible like um from any everything from like the cover of time magazine you know declaring something that archaeologists found to sort of the sense of um, I think there was a cultural movement to try to deal with the complexities of the Bible mm-hmm. by um, kind of taking it out of the knees. And I can see the instinct of it because like you said, when you read these texts, you're like these, at least in the Hebrew scriptures, I mean, some of them are violent. They almost like seem to suggest, for example, in the the qu- Israelite quest, conquest of the land of Canaan, like, like the 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 god depicted in this bible is um you know demanding genocide like i mean these texts are really complex and i can understand why there was an impulse the the best way that our culture at the end of the 20th century knew how to deal with it was to be like you know what this thing is foobar the best thing we can do is um show that it's not credible and move forward mm-hmm. in human evolution like we need to leave the bible behind us and really i had a sense that like the bible was part of the problem mm-hmm. in the world and i don't know exactly where i picked that up but that's haunted me frankly and so my uh, coming to jesus was a bit of a um reluctant coming because there was some degree of humiliation and and i see it as a positive humiliation but for me to t- say no this i don't understand these texts but at least the New Testament is um, compelling me with a revelation of Jesus, who has come, who has died, who has risen, who will come again. And I don't really know what to do with the Old Testament text. And so what I found myself doing for you know the next 20 years really was, to your word, um, sort of cherry picking. And what I mean by that is I basically saturated myself in the text that seemed comforting mm-hmm. or thrilling or moving. Like I remember even early on in at Vanderbilt um, reading isaiah fifty five. This was my sophomore year. I had a conversion experience my freshman year. And I was literally like in ecstasy by the beauty of the poet poetry of isaiah fifty five. And I've always been moved by metaphor and imagery and poetry. And I just was like literally like eating my oatmeal outside um, near the, near the Peabody lawn, like feeling like I wanted to burst into a blossom because the texts were so beautiful. So I would stick with texts that moved me and I would basically avoid the texts that I didn't know what to do with. But I realized this kind of deep sense of like, ah, this, these texts are, if I choose to take them all in, um, not just the ones that I can kind of integrate or ingest or seem to fit with the picture of Jesus that I have, if I take them all in, then my resources are not really adequate to deal mm-hmm. with them. <laughs> and I think that that kind of sense of insecurity around what to do with the text has um, been a bit of a festering wound. And I feel like it through the Bible Project, my Father in Heaven, Holy Spirit, our Mother, Jesus, my brother, my teacher, my rabbi, has met the cry of my heart to know what to how to handle these texts. And, and I just haven't felt like I've been resourced until now. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just at the very beginning of, of feeling like I'm um, gleaning these resources. But it's just, it's literally been like, I think one of the greatest answers to prayer f- of, of the cry of my heart deep down inside over mm-hmm. the, f- the last 20 years to find, um, find, find these resources.
1: Yeah, as you share that. Sherry, I'm I'm struck by the reality that the age in which we live shapes us more profoundly than we realize. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you just described was being born into a culture of secular humanism, yes. right, where we were raised in an era of humanity where fundamentally there was this belief there are human problems and they can be solved with human solutions, right, human ingenuity. In other words, it was a space pretty void of the supernatural. Void of the spiritual, whereas you look back and just watch old movies, right? Go back any movies that feature stories from over five hundred years ago, pre-industrial revolution, and whatever the messaging is, there was a spiritual dimension to it, and so that is part of our our inheritance that we have to unlearn. I know for me, it was a very different experience. I grew up as kind of a practicing Catholic. My dad was agnostic jew and so we did the sunday school ccd mass every sunday and the bible was some big fancy book it was like holy um, don't touch it it sits on the altar the priest reads it or special people that get chosen to go up on the altar because they're holy people or at least they haven't done a lot wrong like i've done wrong and so the good people read from the book they're read, They read what they're told to read on certain days. It's interpreted by one man, the priest. And so it's only accessible through a professional. It's distant. And there were very few pieces featured. I remember like every Lent and Advent, it was like the same readings. And realized like, this is massive book, but we're just not reading lots of it. And again, this was an oversimplified, naive sense. But then when I came to Christ, it was in a Presbyterian Reformed setting where they were all about the Bible and personal relationship with Jesus and reading scriptures daily. And so I called my mom. I said, mom, you know about the Bible. Like, can you send me a Bible? And she sent me the Bible. And I remember sitting in this teaching. And so we opened up our Bibles to First John and the guy's reading, the pastor's reading from the Bible. And like, my Bible doesn't have those words. And I'm like, Oh, this is crap. I have like a bad Bible or like <laughs> I got a cheap Bible or somebody wrote the words wrong. I didn't even know where there were translations because I assumed the Bible was written in English by some teacher that came before the teachers. And so it's just an example of, we all have this on road on into a story that's in motion, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's so important, as you said, some of these stories of the scriptures are just terribly confusing I, mean, yes. I, I just read you know months ago Isaiah was naked for three years as a prophet <laughs> God told him to be naked as part of communicating and demonstrating this message of repentance and I'm going if I see a naked guy on the street that's yelling about the life of God probably not going to listen if he's there for three years <laughs> Okay, but here's the book that I've been quoting from yes. for decades, right? Yes. The Naked Guy. Yes. And so one of the activities, kind of the spiritual practices I have had to do is, as I dive into the details, yes. I have to back up to 30,000 feet. As I take this as um, is this sacred, anointed, ordained literature, I have to remember there's a person yes. behind it all. Yes. That is that is tending to me that's bringing me in where i am bringing the portion that i need that i can actually trust yes god's shepherding god's heart behind my confusion yeah. that actually doesn't have to stop my peace doesn't come from mm. my understanding mm. my key, my peace comes from knowing that god is at the center mm. of this revelation And he's bringing me the portions that I'm ready for. Mm -hmm. And so there's just a lighter and easier Mm -hmm. posture towards it. And then when I come as a student, I now am able to come not with this uh, skepticism or fear, but instead I come as a son Mm -hmm. knowing that my father is revealing a Mm -hmm. deeper revelation of a unified story Mm -hmm. that recovers, I guess one of the central themes of the scripture, Dan Allender quotes this as it's paradise, paradise lost and paradise recovered, right? That that's that's constant. We see that universal theme in people's stories in stories of nations and stories of ages, that there is a sense of all is well. And then something tragic happens. And then there's a path of restoration, which is ultimately the power of Jesus Christ. And so, okay, so we're at, we're at this new time in our life where we have consented to being students and we've dove into the scriptures this year, um, with the, through the Bible and the Bible project, um, first pass we're over halfway through the year. Like, what's it been like for you? Mm -hmm. What have you observed? What are you noticing? How's it been helpful? How's it been disruptive?
2: Hmm. Well, it's been helpful tremendously helpful morgan and like i said it's like provided me this way there where there is no way where i hadn't seen a way which was to um i love how you said it have this innate posture of trust of there's a beautiful person behind these texts the triune god this um community of love that created the world, the universe, the cosmos. Um, So if I can remember that and then come with this, what um, one of my teachers calls it a a hermeneutic of trust, which I don't even really understand the word hermeneutic, but it has something to do with the lens of interpretation or how you interpret. So the biggest thing I take away from you up to this point, I think, is how the Bible Project has pointed out to me that the Hebrew scriptures are highly designed, that they're written by literary geniuses. Mm-hmm. I think that my impression prior to that was they were more like um like a scribe just writing down like one like everything that happened almost like a video camera and so just like writing it down instead of as a brilliant like filmmaker or um documentary maker who takes let's say like the picture I have is let's say that there would have been you know um 10 10 million hours of film around the life of Moses. Mm-hmm. And this beautiful, brilliant documentary maker comes in and says, "I've got to shorten this to an hour." And so what am I what is the story I'm going to tell? How am I going to tell it? What clips am I going to choose to tell it? And I just had no appreciation for that idea of the craft of the authors and the brilliance of the authors to very carefully design the, the the books or the scrolls that they were writing, that these are the Ridley Scots of their time. They were geniuses and they could pull together from a th- let's say a thousand hours of film. They could take and create a stunning piece of art. And I think in the past when or past 20 years, when someone would want to approach the Bible as literature, the only way I could hear that was that they were saying this is only a human book. Mm-hmm. And instead, the Bible Project has given me this appreciation that, oh, to see the Bible as literature, it's this divinely and humanly written book that the fact that it is written by humans who were artists, craftspeople, brilliant um, literary geniuses doesn't diminish the um, sense that this text has authority over my life. And prior to that, I really think I had this binary of like, if I appreciate the human authors and really appreciate how highly designed these texts are, then I'm somehow saying that this text is merely human. It's just been like a before and after for me to um, not be threatened by it as a work of humans, but instead to be invited to find that thrilling, a point of awe, and an appreciation for the genius of the writers of the text.
1: One of the dimensions of that I appreciate is not only is it divinely inspired humanity, but it, the personalities of the writers, that their temperaments, their gifting, their vocation all play a really significant part. As we've been going through the scriptures, uh, Bible Project is is peeling that off the layers. It's taking us deeper and deeper, right? Deeper into the Greek, deeper into the Hebrew, deeper into um, the, the literary devices in storytelling, in history, in tradition. And it's not that things are becoming untrue. It's actually they're becoming more uh, broad and more deep and just a deeper appreciation of our understanding. But like an example of it, so on Easter, I, we become so familiar with these stories, but for the first time, I sat down, so this was Good Friday, and I sat down with the story of Christ's resurrection in all four Gospels. So I took that story side by side, and I read all four back to back, and I had never done that, and share it was such a fascinating experience because they were all telling the same story. You know, it's not a secret, Jesus died, and then he came back to life three days later. But they were also very different. The stories were so very different. I thought to myself if we only had one of those stories, of the four kind of narratives, the four lenses and perspectives, we would have had a very limited and I might even say biased perspective on Christ and the resurrection. But somehow, this most important story of the great story. God chooses to tell from four vantage points, four vignettes, four personalities, four roles in the story. And you have, I I just love John because I know he wrote his gospel, the gospel of John, as an old man. He was a sage. His body had been beaten and broken. I can't imagine how physically tired he was. But he was in those, those last great years of knowing the restoration of all things was at hand And he knew the affection of God. Like that's, I think, the gift from St. John is he knew he was the beloved, right? He was God's favorite, not to the exception of all others we've taught on this, but we are all God's very most favorite. And he knew that. And so he tells the story winsomely from the place of being sought after, being chosen, um, being pursued. And there's this layer of like, he wants it to be known that he beat Peter in the race. He wants it to be known that he was first. There's still this wonderful unfinished piece, and I only know his story because I know my story. There's something in him that's saying, why be remembered? Was I a part of something great? And you can just see the humanity of it. Whereas The Gospel of Matthew, it gets into a lot of like particularities and details. And you can tell, like you, he's very particular in his storytelling and empirical data matters. And it's very thought out. And there's an audience that you can tell would just appreciate the nuances and the fine details. And then you have Mark that just like kind of oversimplifies everything. He just gets to the point, he shoots it straight. He's a blue collar, like, he's the kind of guy. Like it just, like my mentor Skip says, do it like you're stupid, not like you're smart. Like there's gold in that. The point being is we need all four voices. We need all four personalities. It is human, humanly written and divinely inspired. And I just appreciate in this reading of the Bible, how God works and wills through our everyday ordinary life. Even it's the reality of like all the great heroes of the scripture had fatal flaws. The deeper you get into the lives of the great ones, Abraham, Isaac, David, the more we find like it was a mess. They were unfinished. It doesn't void their walking with God, their holiness, their choosing to lean into the supernatural. But it gives me comfort that they were still um God was still at work in their lives and they weren't yet home they hadn't arrived and it's so easy to it's so easy to oversimplify pictures of heroes and end up kind of condemning ourselves and instead saying we were like them and they were like us
2: and what what actually compels me about that morgan is like if you were thinking about how would you write a book if you wanted to inspire a religion quote unquote mm. You wouldn't write about the flaws like of the of the heroes. Like what why why is this story preserved in this particular way where the authors intentionally again, it's not like they just if they had a thousand hours of film, what did they choose to include? They could have opted to say, I'm only focusing on the things that these guys did well. But that the authors intentionally are telling a story where they insist on highlighting for every single person some moment of failure, some moment of compromise. And so I think the other thing for me is to see that the human authorship is is an invitation to be enthralled and curious and to dive deeply. And secondly, to then step back because instead of just taking for granted, like, oh, this is the Bible, this is the story that would have to be told, be like, what kind of purpose would the authors have if these are the stories they choose to tell? Yes. And you know, I think for me, that revelation, I really just it hadn't I hadn't understood until this this past that these different scrolls, these texts, were compiled after the exile. And I actually realized how much they serve as a warning. like if I just take the whole story. It really is a book, yes, that inspires me to have hope, but it is also a book of severe and um, graphic warning about our propensity to idolatry, our propensity to say, we love you, God, and then to forget God and go about wanting to define what is good and evil on our own right and give our allegiance to idols and to spiritual forces of power, sex, money, comfort. I mean, and so you have to think, I have to think, I'm compelled to think like, oh my gosh, these are such, this is a story that's written by a people group mostly about the way they failed. Who tells a story that's primarily about the way that they failed? A huge part of the story of the Hebrew scriptures is the people of Israel going into exile. Like, it's not a story of their victory it's a story in some ways of their defeat. Yes. And so, why would that story be preserved? And what is the, what's compelling the authors to, they could tell any story. They could take those thousand hours of film and tell a different story yes. and opt out of the failure. But instead, they chose to tell this, highlight this part of the story. And so, for me, I think this idea that I primarily, you know it's i think without a sense of the big story it's easy to just think of the bible we go there for comfort but instead i realize that for my soul to be saved delivered from evil and restored into the kind of human i need to be i i need both comfort and challenge i need warning i need um to be made uncomfortable i need to be compelled to be self-critical and to interrogate myself about my own idolatry. It's way too easy to treat the Bible as something that I just look for for comfort if I'm cherry-picking.
1: So Cher, I'd love for you to speak uh, for a minute on that idea of discomfort and interrogation. Several days ago, we were having this conversation about systematic theology, and the idea that much of the kind of, evangelical posture towards the scriptures is this cherry picking where we pick certain verses. So for you, it was comfort, right? For me, the, the Proverbs were just so um, helpful because there's a way things work. And if you do A and B, you get C. And as a person who idolizes responsibility, that's a place of false security. And so I love the book of Proverbs. Right. But I'm so disrupted by grace and the stories of the fruit that comes for people that don't deserve it. Right. So systematic theology is essential. And yet there is an inherent blind spot of when we come to the scriptures with our own bias, our own interpretive grid. We have the luxury of validating about any worldview we want to. Now that's a bold statement, but when you cherry pick from this massive um, canon of text, you can write about any set of beliefs you want. So what has your posture been in reading the Bible so that you're not just coming with your established worldview and kind of proving your own point, right? I remember sitting with Craig when I turned 30 And he said, be passionate about what you believe. And know that most of it will change in a decade. I remember thinking, that's bullshit. And that's bullshit advice. (laughs) Because it's not going to change. This is what's true. And if it is going to change, then how do I be passionate about it? Right? You can hear the young man's fervor in it.
2: Right?
1: So what do you do with it? How have you read? In light of that
2: idea. Yes. Well, it just cracks me up because you and I are just so beautifully different. My struggle has not been to think I'm right. My struggle is to believe that I could ever kind of like really trust myself to know that something's true. So I've just like had a totally different challenge with the Bible. I've come much more with like, um, is is this reliable? Are these texts true? Like I, I, I haven't... Um, you know, anyways, it just cracks me up. Like I've, I have, um, I just, you you and I just have such different frontiers. Morgan, I'd actually like to just ask that back to you first, and then um, I'll respond. Sure.
1: Well, I think one example is, as I look back at how I engaged the Bible over many years, without knowing it, I was engaging it as an orphan. Mm. And so it was pressure. Mm of get my act together, be more moral. God helps those who help themselves. And there's grace, but you have to work for it. Like, and none of that is true in in and of itself. But there was just this posture of God is holy and I need to figure it out. Like, I'm behind, I'm wrong, I'm off. And... Like there's a lot of pressure. Whereas now I I read it very differently. I read it as this, this beckoning, this invitation by love Mm. of a father saying, son, you're on time. I have treasures for you. Many of which you will not understand, some of which you will never understand fully in this world, but I'm guiding you. You are being led. There's a secret. You've been chasing after a secret all your life, but what you find in these scriptures is you're the one that's being chased after. The secret is chasing you. And so when I read scriptures that disturb me, like Ezekiel being ordered to lay on one side for over 100 days... (laughs) And then God says, eat this food. And he freaks out because that's not religiously appropriate food to eat. And God says, okay, well, you don't have to use human feces. You can use cow (laughs) feces to cook your food. Like that's bananas. Don't ask me what I think about that passage. I have no idea. But when I read those stories, I read them now, like with this, this laughter and this ease and this, huh, God, you're the wild one. What must you be up to? And what's for today? And I received this passage from a father to a son. I receive it in the day, I receive it in the decade. And I trust that like you are you are intimately in these details. And so even that passage, for example, I've had awesome conversations with several friends going, What do you make of this? Like, what do you do with it? And it's not um, because God's on trial. And I think that was part of it was before what is God like and Will I follow him if I find him to be someone different than I than I believe him to be? And now it's, I would die on the sword of he is love mm. and he's intimate and we are the sought after. And so there's this posture of true inquisitiveness. Mm-hmm. I want to know more. I want to dig deep, and then I want to back up, and I want to just receive. I, I want to let it wash over me, and trust that life is not found in me figuring it all out that God is cultivating both my personal transformation but also our corporate mm-hmm. salvation and so my posture to it has has changed radically and therefore I can I can see it and receive very differently
2: mm. Mm. beautiful morgan that's so beautiful you know i think for me i just remember i don't know when i first came across it but this idea of these like for spiritual laws. And it's something like, um, you know, maybe it was a tract of some kind that I came across when I was in college, but it was something like, we've sinned, we've uh, separated ourselves from God. God is offering a way back and we can come back and be uh, saved from hell and um, restored to heaven. That somehow that was some sort of like way the gospel was distilled for me. And I just do not find that to be the story (laughs) that I'm finding. Mm -hmm. No, I think if I wanted to cherry pick and fill out those four spiritual laws and tell the gospel, quote unquote, the good news of we don't have to go to hell anymore. We get to go to heaven. I maybe could like go through the text and cherry pick for that.
1: Right. It's not that they're not true.
2: I'm just saying that that's not the... Story that I'm finding. Yes. When I'm taking reading from start to finish, I'm finding a story about God's creation of the world and his desire to share the ruling and reigning with both um, terrestrial beings, humans, and celestial beings, other spiritual powers. And, you know, um, I'm finding a story of a God who seems to want to delegate and rule with, and also a God who's meant for heaven and earth to overlap, um, as Eden did and how God is, um, how humans have, um, chosen to be in rebellion against God, but how God is coming and saying, I will provide a way to heal your waywardness, heal that, that root of rebellion in you, that, that divided heart. And I'm going to do it by, um, the spirit who's going to circumcise your heart so that you would really love me. The, the, the problem, that bentness in me and in the human race away from God and towards self and um, the prizing of self, no matter the cost to others or, um, or to creation, that that's going to be healed. And also that this, whatever the spiritual, these spiritual powers that are also in rebellion, this dark force of evil. Um, that's represented not just in the New Testament, but I've I've now seen it in the Hebrew scriptures as well. Um, Jesus is dealing with it and his crucifixion was a decisive blow to the claim of these dark forces that were on us, have been on the human race. Um, so anyways, I'm just seeing a, just a much different story, a story that's really about heaven and earth overlapping and the Fissure of that, and then the restoration of it, and then God choosing to work through the family of Abraham to bless all nations, not to save them out of the world, but to work through the family of Abraham to restore all of humanity. So it's just a it's just a different story from the story that that tract that I encountered 25 years ago seemed to imply. Morgan, on that note, I remember driving through. Um, the turnpike in Pennsylvania, and seeing some billboard that's like basically like if you die tonight, do you know where you're going? You right. know, and it's a picture of heaven or hell, and then call this number like one eight hundred truth or something mm-hmm. like that. And um, I just am like, wow, how did we get to that being like the way you would condense it onto a billboard? How did? This whole, like you said, this library of books, the story that it's telling, get condensed to that billboard just as, um, wow, really, now that I'm actually reading it is is kind of um, bewilders me. Yes. It just doesn't seem to be the story.
1: Sherry, it reminds me of this beautiful passage I read by Walt Harrington in The Everlasting Stream when he was talking about how his father taught him to see nature. He said there's two ways of seeing. One is to look at a forest and take in the landscape and the colors and the depth and dimension and nuances of all of it in one swoop. And then there is the act of getting on your hands and knees and looking at one flower and one petal. I think as you're describing that, one of the gifts that's come to me this year in reading the scripture is this dance between looking at the forest and looking at the flower, Mm -hmm. where I have to constantly come out to these 30,000-foot themes, and those themes are life-saving, and Mm -hmm. they're revelatory, Mm -hmm. and they're um, transformative. Mm -hmm. And they help ground me when... I'm confused in the details and then to boldly dive into the details and find ourselves in the stories using our sanctified imagination, enter in that moment with Isaiah, where he says, here I am, like, send me, like, send me. Like when I, when I read that in Isaiah six, I go like me too, Mm. me too. And all that I don't understand about him. In all this wildness, we share that in common. I want to want to be the one that says yes. Mm -hmm. And so, the invitation, friends, in this is this series is to be an introduction back to the Bible, and the hope is its preparation for a journey next year, January first, to kick off for you to join us through the Bible. I have this. Beautiful, uh, simple, free Bible app that takes us through their videos, their devotionals, and then a, a set reading plan for 365 days, a time to chat with people. So, more on all that. But what we're trying to do is touch in on what's our experience been like, and we will go into a second conversation on this. And then I'll be inviting some other men that I've also journeyed through the Bible with this year. Before we close this episode, I want to end with a bit of reflection from one of the scriptures. Before we do that, I want to turn your attention towards the message translation written by Eugene Peterson. There's a beautiful story behind that as he pastored a small Uh, what we would call antiquated church. It wasn't a mega church of any sorts for several decades. These were working people, working class, regular folks, and they weren't getting it. They weren't having the, the scriptures, the Bible was not having the impact on their souls that it was having on Eugene. And so he said, I have to find another way because there is power in this book, but I have to translate it in a way that actually meets the people where they were. And the argument over the message is it's actually a translation that's closer to what the translations would have been like when they were written because it was accessible to the ordinary people. And and so as languages change and cultures change, it has to be recovered to be accessible in our age. And in the message Bible... All 66 books, Eugene writes a brilliant introduction. And those 66 introductions put together are one of the most beautiful collections of literary work I've ever seen. And each of those introductions takes us back to the view of the forest. It takes us back to 30,000 feet to recover the themes of what God was up to in Genesis and Leviticus and James. And 2 Timothy, it pulls us back to recover the heart of God. It exists in some of the different forms of the printed message Bible, but we actually located a document that had all of these introductions contained in one place. And so we placed that document as a PDF, a link to it at becomegoodsoil.com. So you'll want to go under the more section and then the arsenal, and you can download it, print it for free. And use it as one more refreshing, evocative, strengthening resource for you as you go through the Bible book by book. And so, again, becomegoodsoil.com, go to more and find it under Arsenal. As I've mentioned before, this is the first of a three part series that all serves as an invitation. Would you join us? My hope is a Thousand brave souls, men and women alike, January 1st, uniting around the common mission to dive deep into the Bible cover to cover. As mentioned before, you can register at becomegoodsoil.com forward slash Bible, and we need to hear from you by November 22nd of 2021 to get you assigned to a cohort for the new year. We are nearing the end of our time together today. I want to close with a reflection. I want to pause and just let all of the dialogue from Sherry and I today to just simmer and settle in over time. But in this moment, I want to turn to Ezekiel and turn to a particular story that has universal Access and application for each of our hearts and souls. Ezekiel was a prophet, and as Eugene Peterson has said, catastrophe strikes and a person's world falls apart. People respond variously to catastrophe, but two of the more common responses are denial and despair. Among the biblical writers, Ezekiel is a master at dealing with catastrophe. When catastrophe struck for him, it was the 6th century B.C. invasion of Israel by Babylon. Ezekiel was a prophet. He had a message. He was a priest to bring a message to the people. He was 30 years old at the time of the invasion and the devastation, so he was meant to be put into his place of appointment as a priest, and instead, he lost everything that mattered to him. And in exile, he writes these beautiful, poetic, and challenging, disruptive invitations and call-outs to the people of God. In Ezekiel chapter 36, there's a brilliant passage that's very particular, but it's also very universal. And I want to invite you into that passage today as a reflection, as an invitation, as a way to enter in and find yourself and your sanctified imagination within the context of these scriptures. And so we find ourselves in the Bible in this beautiful landscape of trees, forest, rock, glade, stream, cloud, weather. And in that moment we see flowers and what we're going to do is get down on a knee and slow down our breath, and slow down our pace, and look at one flower and one petal, as it were, in the sacred scriptures, and find ourselves in the life and story of God. Ezekiel says this, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you out of these countries and gather you from all over. I'm going to bring you back to your own land. I'll pour water over you, and I'll scrub you clean. I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I'll remove the stone heart from your body and replace it with a heart that is God-willed, not self-willed. I'll put my spirit in you and make it possible for you to do what I tell you and live by my commands. You'll once again live in the land I gave your ancestors. You'll be my people, and I will be your God. Holy Spirit, I'm aware that each of us wanders in our soul, that we have grown scattered and fractured. Our attentions and our affections have become divided. We become diffused in a world of too much and too many. And you invite us to be gathered from other kingdoms, from other stories, from other places, and even other seasons. Your spirit gathers us in from nations, and you knit us back together. You pull together all the parts and portions of who you meant us to be, and you bring us home. You become our home. Our home is in you. As Psalm 35 says, we live and breathe God. God, I want to want to live and breathe you. And so I receive this invitation of your pure water poured over me, that you would scrub me clean. God, that your water would saturate my wounds Just even the wounds I've taken in the last day, in the last week, in the last month, in the last year. You know the wounds, you know the trials, you know the suffering, you know the secret places, you know shame and agony. Failure. Not yet. I receive your washing with pure water. I receive your cleansing, the healing water, the rivers of life. I pray that I would immerse myself in this bathing. You lead us beside still waters. You bathe us body, soul, and spirit. I'm made clean in you. Today, I receive a new heart from you, a new spirit in me. I pray, God, that you would remove the stone heart from my body, the places within me that have grown cold and calloused, the places within me that have blockaded my life from your life. And I do pray that you would come today and you would... Give me a heart that is God-willed and not self-willed. I lay down my arranging, my self-saving strategy. And I risk, I choose to risk. I take courage that you give me. And I say, I want to want what you want. I receive your spirit in me not manufactured and not on my terms, but I open the gates of my kingdom to your kingdom. Everything entrusted to my care, I say, come Spirit of God, come Father, come Holy Spirit, come Jesus in all your power. Restore me, restore my land, restore my kingdom, restore my body, restore my hope, Restore my sanctified imagination. Restore your promises set within my heart. Restore relationship. Restore boundaries. Restore margin. Restore sustenance. Restore you as my comfort, my strength, and my guide. You are on your throne and you are well. And I am yours. Gather me in, cleanse me, restore me, strengthen me, God. I hope in my ears as one being taught, I pray that you would dismantle distraction. You would create space. shape in me a God-listening heart. And I'm asking on this day, in this decade, that you would lead me deeper into a God-shaped life. We love you. We bless you. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, would you prayerfully consider registering for this one-year exclusive adventure offer that will kick off January 1st. And then also, as mentioned, would you consider sharing your story with me and with the world for the 100th episode? Share your name, where you're from, a specific BGS podcast episode that God's worked through in your life as an encouragement to the like-hearted, It's an honor that you would invest your time and your strength in this story. And now, as always, 45 seconds to pause before jumping into the next thing, just to breathe and to realign the pace, the portion, and the rhythm according to what God has for you in this moment.